Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. If you're the type to watch the markets, the past couple of weeks have been enough to make you seasick. Regulators the world over have been wondering whether to simply shut down exchanges until the seas calm. And one of the world's finest backgammon players got his start as a homeless man winning chess matches with suckers. Our obituaries editor recounts how he came to dominate the game and why he was universally known as falafel. First up, though. Today, schools in Britain will close for the foreseeable future, following closures in China, South Korea, and large parts of Europe and America. I've been doing online school since the beginning of February for four days now. Four weeks, and now I make quick computer teaching. The consequences of such a decision are huge. From the social... It's annoying because I like getting taught by teachers and I love playing football with my friends. All my other things have been shut down. Because I missed Egyptian. I'll miss Mrs. Jaws and Mrs. Johnson and all my friends. To the educational and economic... I miss school. I like school. It's a lot harder to retain information from a screen and reading off paragraphs or PowerPoints. The schoolwork isn't as hard as normal. It's really fun, but it can sometimes get confusing. I'm not sure that if I had to do this for more than a few months, I would be able to take an exam at the end of it. The United Nations has warned that the global scale and speed of the current educational disruption is unparalleled. At the moment, almost a billion children worldwide are not going to school. Amy Hawkins writes about international affairs for The Economist. And over 100 countries have shut all their schools, and many other countries have shut schools in parts of the country even though children mostly aren't affected by COVID-19, they're the fear that they could be spreaders of the disease. And, and how much do we know about how much kids are vectors? Yeah, so it's kind of unclear, actually, at the moment, the extent to which children can spread COVID-19. In 2013, Britain's Health Protection Agency looked at flu outbreaks that coincided with school closures, and they found that shutting them did slow the transmission of the virus. But for COVID-19, it's not exactly like influenza. And Michael Head of the University of Southampton has said that children may not be the main routes of transmission. So ministers and officials have kind of been reluctant to pull the trigger on closing schools, in the UK at least, for fear of the knock-on consequences that that would cause. Which Which are what? So the costs of closing schools are basically huge. There's the social costs, particularly for very poor children who rely on schools for their one or two meals a day, another place of safety and shelter. So, for example, in America, 26 million children, which is roughly half of all students, qualify for free or reduced lunches. Some schools, such as in New York City, are providing kind of grab-and-go meals now that schools are closed for students who still rely on schools for food, and Britain has said the same. So, yeah, the kind of social costs to closing schools can be really massive. And presumably economic ones, too, in in that uh, who's going to look after them? Yeah, of course. So when schools close, parents need to take time off work or work from home to look after them. And in some countries, such as China, kind of school closures coincided with mandated work from home policies from the government. But in Japan, for example, the government closed all schools. But lots of companies are very hostile to the idea of working from home and there's no paid sick leave. 
And there are also very pronounced kind of gendered expectations of who does childcare. So overwhelmingly, it's been mothers who have to take time off work and face job loss or income loss while schools are closed. And a study in 2009 found that if schools in America were to close for four weeks, it would cost between 0.1% and 0.3% of GDP. And of course, that was just looking at school closures by themselves. But at the moment, we're looking at a much worse economic situation. And also, perhaps most importantly, if schools close, the children of healthcare workers also need looking after us. So that same study found that up to 19% of key healthcare personnel would be, potentially be kept from work in the event of school closures. And for the kids who are doing remote learning, distance learning, computer-based learning, th- does it really work? Remote teaching can work. In 2018, researchers found that after four and a half months of using an Indian app called MindSpark, which tests basic language and math skills, children in India made more progress in these areas than those who weren't using the app. But for that to be done well, you need organisation and prepared delivery rather than this kind of scramble for online teaching we're seeing at the moment. Even then, when it's done well, it is a poor substitute for classroom learning. On average, students fare worse when they're learning online, especially those with less strong academic backgrounds who need more support. I spoke to Susanna Lowe at Brown University, and she said that online teaching is better than nothing, but suboptimal at most. And for most children, their education will suffer. And I suppose some subjects, some ages, are easier to teach than others. Yeah, exactly. Some subjects are easier to teach than others. Some age groups are easier to teach than others. So where possible, how online learning has been turned to this alternative for classroom learning. So learning materials have been posted online. Classes are being conducted by video conferences. I spoke to one teacher in Italy who's been kind of posting literature explainers on YouTube. There's another professor in China who's been using Zoom to do video conferencing. But there has been problems with this. Not everyone has access to the internet. In China, for example, fewer than 50% of the population is online. And in the USA, 7 million school-aged children live in households without any internet access. And surely the degree to which the the learning is interrupted, I mean, the the, the general habit of schooling is interrupted, is going to have knock-on effects for those kids. Yeah, definitely. So one problem that parents around the world are worried about at the moment is school leaving exams. So, for example, in the UK, the government's just announced that GCSEs and A-levels are going to be cancelled. In China, the Gaokao, which is the university entrance exam, which is hugely important there, the whole country kind of goes into lockdown just for that normally. And that's normally held in June. No one really knows what's happening with that yet, but lots of people think it's going to have to be delayed because the education's been so disrupted for the past few months. Some places, such as America, the stakes are a bit lower because, for example, in university applications, transcripts, which is like your kind of year-round appraisal, is more important than your exams. But exams are also important, and the SATs in March and May, where most students sit their SATs, have been cancelled. So universities have been kind of having to adapt to these disruptions in students' education. And so taken together then with these sorts of uh, delays and uh, less than optimal teaching situations and so on, what do you think the sort of overall long-term impact is going to be? I think the long-term impact is going to be really significant, not least because lots of students, especially those kind of who are due to sit crucial exams, will feel hard done by. But more than that, I think the fact that lots of parents might lose their jobs if they're in precarious work and they have to take time off to look after their kids. For poorer children, there's even more severe risk that they're not going to be able to eat properly. And so for many children, this is a kind of crucial time in their educational period. And 
depending on how long school they're closed for, there could be quite serious long-term impacts. Amy, thanks very much for your time. No, thank you for having me. If you like The Intelligence and want to get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The floor of the New York Stock Exchange is where brokers, traders, and market makers come together. In truth, its role is largely symbolic these days. Most trading on the exchange is actually conducted elsewhere. And soon, all of it will be. This afternoon's closing bell will be the last for, well, it's unclear for how long. The exchange will move to all electronic trading in response to the coronavirus epidemic. That's happened before, most recently in the wake of Hurricane Sandy in 2012. The market has again been swinging wildly this week. The so-called circuit breakers that automatically pause trading when the swings are too wild just keep popping. Seesawing markets have prompted some countries to question whether to pause trading entirely until things settle down. Well, it's been pretty much the craziest week on stock exchanges that we have seen since the financial crisis. And in fact, in many ways, crazier than the financial crisis. Stanley Pignol is our European business and finance correspondent based in Paris. So what we've seen are two things. The first is radical seesawing of markets, usually down. And the second thing is questions over whether the markets should even remain open, given the extraordinary circumstances that we find ourselves in. What's going on actually on these trading floors? Well, investors are having to react to extraordinary news flow. The The COVID-19 situation is causing economic havoc. It's causing financial havoc. It's causing corporate havoc. So all of a sudden, shares are needing to be repriced radically. What regulators might be worried about is, are markets moving so much because there's a glitch in the market? For example, there's not enough liquidity or there are participants that are behaving erratically for some reason, or are they moving? for real underlying reasons, i.e. people just want to own different things in their portfolio because the world just looks different. And, and so far, how have uh, exchanges reacted to this? So what sort of policies are in place for these crazy times? So the exchanges are very clear that they are working properly. What we've seen are some closures of physical locations, but uh, most trading these days obviously is done by, by computers, is matched by computers. So the hope is that these new restrictions are going to be unsettling for markets, but that they should be able to take them in their stride. The bigger question is whether regulators or politicians are going to want to curtail the working of markets. Um, and there we've seen we've seen two things. Uh, Manila in the Philippines closed its stock exchange at, at the start of the week, only to reopen it a few days later after investors seem to be more spooked by that than by the markets remaining open. 
And in the U.S., Steve Nukin, the Treasury Secretary, suggested shorter hours. I've been on the phone with the major banks, with the New York Stock Exchange. Everybody wants to keep it open. We may get to a point where we shorten the hours if that's something they need to do. Which I think spooked some investors who thought, well, wait a sec, maybe I won't be able to sell the stuff that I might want to sell next week, so maybe I should just sell it now. So so the question is whether it's uh, more uncertainty by letting things just come and go as they currently are, or whether uh, actually trying to shut things down would actually spook the markets more? So clearly it is the prospect of markets not working which spooks investors more. We've seen that in the past, actually. Stock market closures are extremely rare. They didn't happen uh, during the last major financial crisis in 2007 to 2009. When they do happen, it tends to be because the physical infrastructure is compromised. But Greece is a telling example. It closed its stock market in 2015, summer of 2015, when capital controls came in and when they reopened, uh, when the stock market reopened, of course, it, 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 it cratered. Closing the market does not mean that investors are all of a sudden going to be happy to own stuff that they would otherwise want to sell. What tends to happen is they then sell something else. And that, in turn, can set a chain reaction where you're selling less liquid things, so at bigger discounts, causing bigger dislocation in markets. So really what the sensible approach is, and that's what what market makers and market participants are saying, is as long as the markets themselves are functioning well, which is currently the case, Keep them open. Well, what about the case, though, if it's not the physical infrastructure that, that, that's damaged, that's, uh, that's unworkable, but the, the human capital? What, what about when there are enough people sick that the markets can't run? Yeah, so that, that I think is going to be the next big issue. There are trading floors all over London, all over New York, which so far haven't really been impacted. But if enough people are missing, you start wondering how some of these asset classes work. Different assets are going to require a different amount of, of human intervention. So far, that hasn't been the case. People are able to work from home. It's clearly challenging. There are clearly people who are off for very mundane reasons, like they don't have childcare and, and so on. We we all have these issues. Uh, we see them at The Economist. I imagine that Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan have exactly the same issues as we have, with an added twist that there are regulatory constraints that, that trading floors need to deal with. So, for example, all conversations between traders are meant to be recorded. What happens if everybody's working from home and you don't have enough lines for all the conversations to be recorded? There is a sense from the people I've spoken to that regulators are going to be understanding. They want the, the, the overarching ambition is for markets to keep working. And if there needs to be a bit of flexibility while systems adapt, nobody is going to uh, look too closely. So what, what's your own view? Do you, do you think this, this relentless push to keep the markets open uh, unless they physically cannot be kept open is... Is this the way to keep things the most stable, sensible, balanced? Yeah, and it seems to be the way things are going. The long and short of it is investors are not going to be reassured if you close trading venues. On the contrary, they're just going to find other ways to raise money, and those are going to be less productive than doing it through structured liquid markets where people buy and sell in the usual way. Markets are working. They are going through extraordinary dislocation, but that's not because there are problems in the market. It's just because the world has changed and people are trying to adapt to that change. Stanley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. Matvey Natanson is legendary in the world of backgammon. 
but he was known to everyone by a different name. I was really fascinated to find a man who was called Falafel, and I felt I had to get into this story and find out why he was called that, what his life was, what he was doing. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. His story really begins when he left his town of Buffalo, where he'd been living since he was 14, having moved there from Israel. He left there because he couldn't find a job and really didn't much want to find a job, couldn't bear the thought of working in an office. He decided he would go and make his fortune in New York. And off he went with no money and the only things in his backpack were a chessboard and a chess clock because he had always enjoyed playing chess and been pretty good at it. And he thought, well, I make an impression in New York if I carry on doing this. But then he arrived in New York with no friends, no contacts, nothing at all, and found he had to sleep wherever he could. So at one point, he found himself having to sleep under a chess table in Washington Square Park. And he'd had a meal of falafel the night before. And he sort of fell asleep with this falafel on his face. In fact, falafel was the only thing he managed to eat because it was actually not too expensive and he could just about manage to afford that. So there he was lying there. And with the dawn, there came along a chap called Russian Paul, who liked to play chess at this particular table and was one of the leading chess hustlers in the park. A chess hustler is someone who is trying to get any passers-by. You try to get them to play with you for money, and that way you manage to get an income. So Russian Paul wanted his table back for use, and uh, he decided he would get this chap who was sleeping underneath it to guard it for him every day, give him two dollars. And so they became friends. Falafel got his two dollars and also acquired his name because he just went on buying falafel. That was still all he could afford. Meantime, he was learning an awful lot about chess from Russian Paul and incidentally beginning to notice backgammon too. He became very fascinated with backgammon because he noticed that when the hustlers in the park managed to snare these weaker players to come and play with them, they made a lot more money from backgammon than they did from chess. The thing about backgammon was that it's a game of strategy on the one hand and it's a game of complete randomness on the other way of throwing a dice. So he gradually got more and more interested in that game. Russian Paul taught him backgammon too. And in the beginning, he lost almost all his games, but he felt there was somehow a deep truth lurking within backgammon because it was so like life. One moment you were planning wonderfully, you had all these strategic moves set up with how you were going to get your checkers home before your opponent could. On the other hand, with one throw of the dice and you threw the dice with every move, you could suddenly find yourself losing an awful lot of money and losing the game. This seemed to him rather exactly what his life had been up to now and still was. So he took up the game of backgammon and began to practice and practice and practice. 
He still didn't really have anywhere permanent to live. He was moving to flop houses. Sometimes he could rent a room. Whenever he could rent a room, he would just sit in front of the screen all day, playing backgammon online and trying to get better and better at it. And gradually he did and moved into the big time of backgammon playing. Well, he managed to get a great deal of success because he had so honed his talent and his skill that he could really beat anyone hands down by the end. And uh, he went in for a great many games because he realized that this was going to be his income. It wasn't just a leisure activity. He was actually going to make a living at it. And he sometimes managed to make tens of thousands of dollars in a game that would not even take an hour. He was extremely good at it, so good that by 2007, he was actually crowned by uh, the Giants of Backgammon, which is a rather kind of unscientific group of world-class backgammon players. He was crowned the best player in the world, and he was most extraordinarily gifted at it. But he was still living like a homeless person. That's the extraordinary thing about him. He never did settle. You know, he seemed to spend his time, even when he had a bit of money, just sitting in hotel rooms, playing online. But he was never satisfied with what he could do. He always felt there was something more to discover in the game. He was, I think, fundamentally someone who found it very difficult to operate in society. By all accounts, he was gregarious and sometimes fun, cracking jokes and so on, but he found it intensely difficult to socialize with people, was very shy with girls. He was longing to get married and to have a family. He was longing not to be alone, but most of his time was spent alone playing online. and. Uh, he went back to Israel, I think, really hoping that he'd find a warmth and closeness there, but never quite finding that family life that he hoped more than anything to get. And I found it very ironic that the whole point of backgammon is to get yourself home, to get all your checkers off the board and be home. And somehow he never was. He was certainly never at home in America and possibly not really anywhere. Anro on Falafel, who's died aged 51. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you back here on Monday.